This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Y'all ever found yourself under so much stress, under so much pressure, that eventually you, you snap, right? And you're like, forget it, right? Forget it. I am going to do what I want, when I want, the way I want, right? I, I, don't, I don't care about the rules. I don't care about the consequences because I have had it with y'all. So imagine, imagine a football player. He's frustrated, right? It's been a bad year. And for those of us that live in Chicago, this is easy for us to imagine. Um, you're frustrated with the coach, right? You're complaining because you're not getting the ball enough. You're frustrated with your teammates. You're frustrated because they're not good enough. You're frustrated with the fans, right? They're not loyal enough. And so imagine then in the next game, quarterback he he calls one play in the huddle uh, and knowing you're not getting the ball knowing that you're supposed to stay in and block you're like uh-uh and you go rogue and you go run a different play think about think about what that does to the team at a, at a minimum the guy getting the ball right he's got a wide open defender coming at him right we call that a lookout block because instead of blocking you run and you yell back at the guy look out He's getting, he's getting tackled. But, you know, I think, I think we've all been around that type of frustrated player in some sort of locker room in our life, haven't we? The locker room of you have your home or school or work, uh, uh, traffic along the Kennedy or behind them in line at the grocery store. They're always complaining. I was complaining about, about everything. They're frustrated at everyone and everything for the way things are. And rather than getting involved, rather than taking responsibility, rather than being an agent of change, they go off and they run their own play thinking, who cares? I'm going to do whatever I want. Right? We've all been around that type of frustrated player, but not only that, I think we've all been that frustrated player. Some of us here this morning are that frustrated player. And what you're thinking to yourself is, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. We hadn't had a Taylor Swift line in a couple months, it was time. But now imagine, now imagine the coach standing before this frustrated team. Let's say, let's say the coach is standing before the team in New Orleans and the team is two and six and their starting quarterback is hurt, he, the thumb on his uh, throwing hand's broken. We're just hypotheticals here, Bears fans. Imagine what the coach is going to say to this frustrated team before he loses the locker room. And, and that's, in a sense, what we're going to see this morning as we continue our way through the book of Philippians and our series for the good of one another. As, as Paul, he, he's encouraging this struggling and, and increasingly frustrated church to stick to the game plan, to continue working together as a team. And he's writing them, encouraging them of three things in this passage. First, of the what, of what it is they are to do, which is their continued obedience. Of the how, how they are going about it, and the why, why their obedience matters, seeing their obedience as being for the good of one another. And so let's start with the what. We're going to start with the what of continued obedience. Look down here with me. The book of Philippians, we're going to be in chapter 2, look at verse 12 and 13 with me. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
Not only is it my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, he is riding from prison a ways away. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's doing a couple of things here. One is, is he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them to continue faithfully following the way of Jesus in, in obedience to the words of Jesus. He's, he's encouraging them to, to stay the course as they had always done, he writes, ever since he first was with them some five to ten years ago when he first planted the church, when they first heard the gospel. He's encouraging them, but he's also reminding them that their continued obedience is not conditional. Right? It's not dependent on anything. For one, what we see here is, is, is your continued obedience, our continued obedience. It's not dependent on what is happening to you, right? It's not dependent on, on what it is you are facing or how you are feeling. This church, they, they, were, they were suffering, and they were suffering because of their obedience to Jesus as Lord. And they had to be wondering, like, is, is it all worth it? They, they had to be thinking there's got to be an easier way, a way that, that avoids all this suffering. Which again is why he wrote, encouraging them to stay the course, reminding them that their obedience is not dependent on what it is that they are facing or how they are feeling. And he does so with the first line, the first word of this passage, that opening, therefore. And he's pointing back to the Christ hymn, to the passage that we saw last week, to, to Jesus as the one who did nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility counted the good of others as more significant. He's pointing back to Jesus as the one who not only looked out for his own interest, but the interest of others, our interest. He's pointing back to Jesus as the one who lived in perfect obedience to the Father, all for our good all in anticipation of the most excruciating suffering imaginable. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion, asking the Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Praying in such agony that Luke writes that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was asking if there was any other way for him to accomplish his mission as Messiah. But he closes his prayer saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because in the end, what was most important to Jesus was obedience to the will of the Father. And the point Paul's making here is that we don't just follow the way of Jesus when it's convenient. We don't just follow the way of Jesus when it is easy. When, when he's leading where we happen to want to go and getting us where we want to go, when we want to get there, only to bail and to find another way when he's not going where you want. To find another way when he's not going as fast as you want. To find an easier way when his way is too hard. Because your obedience to God is not conditional. It is not dependent on what it is that is happening to you, on what you are facing or how you are feeling. But he also shows us here that, that our obedience to God, it's not dependent on who is around you, is it? It's not dependent on who's watching on who, or who's listening, whether Paul was with them or not. Yet, if we're honest, like, we are prone to act one way when others are around and another way when we're alone, aren't we? 
You're more careful about what you say in certain situations. For example, you're more, you're more careful what you say when you're around kids. Uh, apparently, you're also more careful about what you say when you're around pastors. Right? The number of times I've had someone say like, oh, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that in front of a pastor. And I'm like, maybe you probably shouldn't have just ever said it, period. More careful about what you say. And more careful about what you do. Like, as a kid, can we be honest? Like, you behaved one way when the teacher was looking at the class, and the second the teacher turned their back, you acted in an entirely different way. And then when they went out to the hallway, you acted in an even a different way. There was a whole nether gear, and all God's teachers in the room said amen. Yeah, I'm seeing some head nods, okay. Same's true with trick-or-treating. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I think I'm getting to the age I've got enough gray hairs that I can say that as though it was more than two weeks ago. Um, I, I look, I got a lot of gray hair for being 25, don't I? Um, when I was a kid, like, you got to take one piece of candy, only if you rang the doorbell and only if they answered. But today, kids these days, I don't want to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy, though. Kids these days, though, they go up to a house, there's a whole bowl full of candy just sitting on the front porch because my generation, I guess, is the ones that doesn't want to open the door for anybody anymore. We're inside doing something else. And there's a whole bowl of candy with a sign that says, just take one. Now, come on. Who here is taking just one piece of candy? Okay, we got one of you. The rest of y'all, you're clearly taking a whole bunch. But, but, now you go up to this house, same sign, just take one. There's a ring doorbell. And you know that ring doorbell has a camera in it. And you know that they're watching that on their TV right now because if they see you taking a whole bunch, they're going to post your video. We behave differently when people are watching and listening. I mean, just think about the way you behave when you're at church. Think about the way you behave when you're around your small group. And then think about the way you behave at work. And think about the way you behave around your other friends. Are they the same? The point that I think he's making here is that we don't just follow the way of Jesus when others are around when others are watching, when others are listening, so that we look good, just, just keeping up appearances, so that we look like what a supposed Christian is supposed to look like, only to go our own way when we're alone, when there's nobody watching, when there's nobody listening, thinking no one's ever going to know, no one's ever going to find out. Besides, no one's getting hurt. Because your obedience to God is not conditional, amen? Our obedience to God is not conditional, it is not dependent on who is around you or who is not around you. And then he goes on to say something interesting. He goes on to say that our continued obedience, it leads to something. He says, it leads to working out our own salvation. And our, our salvation, I think we've kind of misunderstood this, but our salvation is not something that we just receive and then move on from. Thinking that, well, I got it, I have arrived. All that matters is, is getting saved, uh, is praying that prayer is answering the altar call, right? I got baptized, now I'm done, I'm good, I've arrived. No, our salvation is a lifelong journey, isn't it? A journey that, that Paul says in multiple places in the New Testament is not complete until Christ returns. And so while our salvation is very much a gift that is received, a gift of God's grace, not a gift earned, a gift received from God, 
Our salvation's not the kind of gift that you, you put on a shelf. It's not a tchotchke. It's not something that just collects dust and that you look at it. No, it is a gift that is meant to be used. A gift that we are continually working out with every passing day, with every step that we take. And what he's referring to here is our spiritual growth, growing to be more like Jesus. Right? Our spiritual formation being formed into his image, into his likeness. But how? How do we grow? How are we being formed? By faithfully following the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus. And like we saw last week, it is this living out of our sense of, of belonging as brothers and sisters united together in Christ. It is living out our sense of identity as beloved children of God. And it is living out our sense of purpose, empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit dwelling within you individually and with among us collectively, for it is God who works in you through his Spirit, Paul says. Not only having begun this good work in you, but bringing this good work in you about to completion, he said at the beginning of the letter. Which is why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he says. In awe of God, in awe of who he is and what he has done, in awe of his presence among us and within us, working in us, working through us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As Augustine writes, we are acted upon so that we may act. God working within us, God changing what it is that we desire so that we desire what he desires. So that we love what he loves. God changing what we desire. God changing what we do. Not just praying thy will be done as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But carrying out his will in obedience to his word. Just as Jesus did on the cross as we pick up our cross and faithfully follow him. Our obedience then lived out among one another. Right? For his glory and the good of one another, our spiritual growth taking place within community for his good pleasure and for the good of the community. That's the what. And then Paul moves on to the how of how we are to do it. Maybe said better of how we're not to do it. Look down with me what he says in verse 14. He says, do all these things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And like we grumble and dispute when we see passages that tell us not to grumble or dispute, don't we? Sort of like when I say, everybody raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. Some of you raised your hand. Some of you were like, that's grumbling and disputing, kind of, you know. But that's what we do when things don't go our way. When we're that frustrated player. When that's what happens when we're asked to do something we don't want to do. We argue with others, we complain about others, rather than discussing our disagreements with others. And he's making a very subtle connection here back to the story of the Exodus, right? To God freeing his people from some 400 years of slavery in Egypt and beginning this, this long road trip back to the promised land of Canaan. And, and if you've ever been on a road trip with others, there's a few things that I think are common to all of our experiences. There's always someone in the car asking if we're there yet. Like, we haven't even backed out of the driveway. No, we're not there yet. Uh, there's someone asking, are, are you going the right way? Because I'm pretty sure this way is faster than that way. You, you've got people that are 
that are thirsty because they forgot their water bottle, when you ask them 18 times, don't forget your water bottle. Uh, They're complaining about snacks. Meanwhile, they didn't bring any snacks. You're the one that brought the snacks. They could have brought their own snacks. They're complaining because it's too cold in the car. They're complaining because the volume on the radio is too loud. And it never fails. You're not even out of town yet, and someone's got to go to the bathroom. That was Israel on this road trip back home. They were constantly grumbling. They were complaining to Moses. They were complaining about Moses. And you know what Moses' response to them was? He says, you're grumbling. It's not against me. It's against the Lord. Don't make dad turn this car around because he will take us back to Egypt. Just as Israel grew increasingly frustrated, arguing with others, complaining about others, Paul was fearing that the same was taking place in Philippi based on the reports he was getting. Uh, some scholars, they, they're thinking that they're, they were grumbling about those in leadership, disputing their decisions in part for a couple of reasons. In part, one, given the, the unique opening in, in the greeting of the letter as he addressed not just all the saints in Philippi, but all the saints along with the overseers and deacons. But also because of a disagreement he addresses in chapter 4 between Yudia and Syntyche, two women that were uh, his partners, that worked alongside with him, his co-workers who were likely leaders in the church. And likely, rather than seeking the good of one another, there were some in the church, possibly due to the influence of these outside false teachers that Paul talks about in chapter 3, that rather than seeking the good of one another, they were seeking to divide one from the other. They were forming factions. That's what we do when things don't go our way, when we don't get what we want. We find those who want to go our way, who want what we want, and we form a little team against the other team who wants something else and want to go another way. We do that when our preferences aren't being met. We do that when our desires aren't being satisfied. We turn inward, making everything about me. And we end up doing what Paul says here. We end up complaining about others, grumbling to others, slandering, spreading rumors. And and here's the thing. We're quick to often call this processing with others when, in fact, it is often nothing more than gossiping about others, isn't it? But not only that, we end up arguing with others, disputing the decisions of others, arguing about decisions we didn't like, assuming motives of those who made it, and undermining those who made it. This is one of those points in the sermon where i got to put a big asterisk based on some of the experiences we've all been through. So I want to clarify something here. Grumbling. Grumbling is different than lament. Grumbling is different from lament, which is grieving the brokenness that exists in our world. I don't want you to think that that is complaining. That is lament. Here's the other thing I want to clarify. Uh, disputing decisions is different than holding leaders accountable for their decisions. Those are very different. He's, he's not saying don't hold leaders accountable. He, we are to ask good questions, good clarifying questions about how decisions are made, seeking to understand the why behind the what. But whereas lament and accountability, they seek to unite the body, gossip seeks to divide and destroy, doesn't it? It is a toxic poison that infects everything it touches. It is a raging fire that burns everything in its path. And so can we, can we kind of all agree on something this morning? Can we agree not to breathe life into gossip, whether we are the ones breathing it or we are the ones receiving it, that we stop it? 
Let's agree not to breathe life into gossip. And when there's conflict, when there's disagreement with someone, let's agree to go and talk to them rather than talking about them to everyone but them. Make sense? That's true of us when we speak it. That's true of us when we hear it. Because let's not only be people who seek, let's be people who seek the good of one another rather than seeking to divide one from the other. But truth be told, this passage is, is not just about our speech about one another. I think he's also referring to here about our speech to God, of how we approach God, not just about how we approach others. Because ultimately, this is about our arguing with God. This is about our complaining about God, complaining about the way in which he has called us to live, disputing his will for our lives. It's about willing and working for his good pleasure without grumbling or disputing. It is about trusting that, that, that God as creator, that he and he alone knows what is best for us. It is about trusting that God is father, that he desires what is best for us as his children. So he's addressed the what of continued obedience. He's addressed how we are to live in obedience and about this point, we're the grumpy kid that asks one question, a one, one-word question, and that question is, why? Because we, we, we don't like being told what to do, do we? We don't. We don't like being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where to do it. The whole who to do it with, we don't like any of it. Even if we were going to do exactly what we were told to do, we don't like it because you told us to do it rather than me saying I wanted to do it. So look at what he says here. Look at how he addresses the why here in verse 15 and 16. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. God has called us as his people to live a certain way, to be holy, to be set apart and distinct from the world. He's called us to live a, a certain way for a certain reason because, because he is holy. Because he is set apart and distinct from all other gods that are worshipped. All other gods built by human hands. And so our obedience, our uh, desiring his will, our doing his work, it is first and foremost, as Paul says, for his good pleasure, for his glory, isn't it? The, the entirety of our lives offered as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And to be honest, we need no more why than that. That is enough. But he gives us more. Because our obedience also brings about good. Our obedience brings about good. It, God having called us to live a certain way in, in relation to him, in relation to each other, and in relation to all of creation. A way that brings about good, our own good, the good of others, the good of all creation. Uh, living out our, our creation mandate, so to speak, from Genesis 1 and continuing in the act of creation and caring for creation. And, and here again, he, he's got this subtle allusion once again to this Exodus story of how God's people, they were, they were to shine as lights in the world. He, he's, he's referencing here something uh, God said to Isaiah that they were, they were made as a light for the nations. Why? that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right, that their obedience was bringing about not just glory to God, 
and the good of one another, but the good of others, the good of all others, so that, that all of creation might worship Yahweh is Lord, so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But the generation that God rescued from Egypt, they very quickly lost sight of who they were called to be and how they were called to live. To the point Moses, he referred to them as a crooked and twisted generation that were no longer his children. Their lack of obedience in God, their lack of trust in God, it hindered their spiritual growth to the point that that entire generation that was rescued from Egypt, they died without ever setting foot in the promised land of Canaan, including Moses, with the exception of two, Joshua and Caleb. Two who remained obedient to God in the wilderness. And as followers of Jesus, from, from 2,000 years ago in Philippi to today, we have been called to be what Paul talks about here. We have been called to be blameless. We've been called to be blameless. Not that we are without sin because we're not. We've got plenty of that. But that we're not to bring about harm to others. We are free to be free of blame from harming others, but instead known by our What? Our love. We're to be blameless. We're to be innocent, meaning we're, we're to be pure. And, and not that we're without guilt, because we're guilty. But that our obedience to God is, is to not to be watered down. It's not to be contaminated by other things, worshiping other gods, our attention and our affection, remaining singularly devoted to God and God alone, desiring his will and doing his work making us feel safe and secure in his loving arms as children of God. Holding fast to the word of life, he says, the living word that brings about life, that being Jesus who declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And then my favorite part here, shining as lights to the world, shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, shining as beacons of, of hope in a dark world. How? By pointing people to Jesus, by loving them like Jesus. By faithfully following the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus. By doing that, we become this light that draws others out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. But when we allow that light to fade, frustrated by the surrounding darkness that exists in our world, frustrated when things aren't going our way, when we hide that light, fearing the darkness that exists, fearing what our faith and our obedience might cost us, and instead going our own way rather than the way of Jesus, our lives no longer bring glory to God and they cease to bring about good to others. Having lost sight of our purpose, of who it is we are called to be and how it is we are called to live as holy and set apart and distinct. And instead of caring for creation, we end up harming it. I came across an old African proverb this week that goes something like this. It says, when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. When elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. When we as God's people stop living for the glory of God and the good of others, when we are no longer desiring his will and doing his work, we end up trampling others beneath our feet hurting those we are called to care for. And like the world is watching us every second of every day. 
And I don't just mean because our entire lives are captured on video and stored on a server somewhere, which they pretty much are anymore. They see how our behaviors don't align with our beliefs. And like without ever opening a Bible and without ever stepping foot in a church, they can kind of figure out that some of the times the way that we live is not the way of Jesus. They, they, they've heard a bit about him. And they're like, that, 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 that's not the Jesus that I heard about. And rather than being known by our love, we end up being known by our bigotry, by our hypocrisy, by our patriarchy. The world knows us by our sin and disobedience. And rather than pointing people to Jesus, we end up pushing people away from Jesus, pushing people away from the church, pushing people away from the church. Do you see now why our obedience matters? Do you see why your obedience matters, not just for you, not just for your own good, but for the good of others? Your continued working out of your salvation, your, your spiritual growth, your formation, and not just yours individually, mind you. This is a letter written to a church, to a collection. The yous here are plural. These are y'alls, not yous. Our collective growth as a church. It's not just for your good. It's not just for my good. It's not just for our good. It is for the good of others. It is for the good of all creation. Not only to make my name known as a pastor, not to make your name known, not to make redemption's names known. None of those names matter. The only name that matters is the name of Jesus. Amen? The name that is above every name. Our Lord, our Savior, our King. That is what Paul wanted for this church. That is why he wrote them encouraging them and reminding them of these things. Reminding them of their obedience of why it was so necessary. Paul wanted that for the church in Philippi. I want that for us as a church as well. Paul, he, he, makes no, he makes no secret. He wanted his work to matter. And to be honest, I want my work to matter. I want your work to matter. And he says in verse 16, he says, he wants it to matter so that on the day of Christ, when the day when Christ returns, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He wanted to be proud of living a life of faithful obedience. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, even if he was to be killed because of his faithful obedience to Jesus as Lord, he's saying, it would all have been worth it. There is no price too great for me to pay for my faithfulness to Christ. He says, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you in prison because of his faith. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me in your obedience, in your doing, and in your desiring. Not for your good pleasure, but for his. Rejoicing in obedience for the good of one another. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.